As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The Jericho Network on Westwood One. Just before we get started with today's show, I want to fill you in on an upcoming episode of the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. We're putting together a special Q&A episode. The episode will feature questions from you, questions that you feel have gone unanswered in previous episodes, or questions that we haven't even dealt with before on the show. Here's your opportunity to unload all of your burning questions. And if I can't answer it, we'll find the person who can. Record your questions, including your name and where you're from. Then email your audio to me at rrtz.questions at gmail.com. That's rrtz.questions at gmail.com. This special Q&A edition of the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone will drop later this summer. The Beatles represent that radical kind of cultural Marxist approach to social revolution. The Beatles were supposed to push drugs to decent American kids. This is the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone with Richard Serrett. Heard exclusively on the Jericho Network in partnership with Westwood One. Unearthing the biggest stories from the history of rock. Exposing the truth and the tragedy. The stories behind rock's immortals. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. What might happen is that we blow your mind. Here's your host, Richard Serrett. February 9th, 1964, and one of the most important moments in the history of popular music actually occurs on television. It was witnessed by a record 73 million viewers. And going on six decades later, people still remember exactly where they were the night the Beatles stepped onto Ed Sullivan's stage. There are a number of stories about how the Beatles came to appear on the Ed Sullivan Show. 
the most popular is that in 1963, while arriving at London's Heathrow Airport, Sullivan and his wife Sylvia encountered thousands of youngsters waiting excitedly in the rain. When Sullivan asked what all the commotion was about, he was told that a British band named the Beatles was returning home from a tour in Sweden. When he got to his hotel room, Sullivan purportedly inquired about booking the group for his show. However, it was not until later that year that the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, reached an agreement with Ed Sullivan to bring the group to America to perform live for the first time on U.S. television. Following dinner at the Hotel Delmonico in New York City, a handshake between the two men sealed the deal for performances on three shows to air in 1964. In return, the Beatles would receive $10,000 for three appearances and top billing. According to another version, the Fab Four's appearance on The Sullivan Show was part of a sinister plot, a centuries-old battle once fought by musket, now being waged with software and technology. When the fresh-faced lads from Liverpool launched into their top 100 hit, I Want to Hold Your Hand, it was the first salvo of what would become known as the British Invasion. A short time later, Life magazine would report, In 1776, England lost her American colonies. Last week, the Beatles took them back. Although likely meant in a tongue-in-cheek manner, Life magazine may have been closer to the truth than its editorial staff realized. The British invasion was a cultural phenomenon of the mid-1960s when rock and pop music acts from the United Kingdom landed in America and enthralled North American youth. Groups such as the Beatles, the Dave Clark Five, the Kinks, the Rolling Stones, Herman's Hermits, and the Animals were at the forefront of the invasion. Invasion. What an interesting choice of words. What would you say if I were to tell you that the word invasion is precisely the correct word? What would you say if I were to tell you that the Beatles were a creation of the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations in London, England? Part of a plot intended to cause social upheaval in the United States as a means of winning back the colony Great Britain lost in 1776. You're about to meet a media scientist and an author who will argue this is all true. You'll learn about the music and social critic who supposedly designed the Beatles' music using supercomputers and how the British invasion was designed to dumb down American youth and turn them on to drugs. You'll also hear from a music journalist and blogger who insists it's all a silly conspiracy theory. You'll have to make up your own mind as to who has it right. The Beatles as a British intelligence psyop when the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone continues. Welcome back to the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. Here's Richard Serrett. On this episode of the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, we're exploring the strange theory that the Beatles were a creation of the infamous British think tank, the Tavistock Institute. In order to understand the why and the how, it's important to go back to the beginning, all the way back to 1776, 
and the American War of Independence. Nelson Fall is a media scientist who studied under the great communications theory guru, Marshall McLuhan. What's interesting is while Cornwallis, the British general, surrendered to Lafayette, the French general, the war between Britain and France ended. However, Cornwallis never surrendered to General Washington, and the battle continued with the War of 1812, which was uh, just the continuation of the war between Britain and America. And then the Civil War, it wasn't a Civil War, but a British-financed Southern Army. That just continued the 1776 battle, the ancient quarrel. Remember, the British crown owned America. It was crown land like it is in Canada. To them, America was crown land too, and they wandered back. And that's what's been going on since 1776. They've been at war using various weaponry since uh, 1776. And over time, over hundreds of years, as electricity and electric computers came into fashion, the military used electronics as well as guns, etc., to fight the wars. It went into the software world, and the Beatles were exactly that, a mind control software program developed by the Psychological Warfare Division of the British Army. Thal is hardly alone in embracing what seems on the surface to be a totally outlandish theory. A former member of Great Britain's Foreign Intelligence Service, MI6, John Coleman, wrote several books on this subject, including Conspirators' Hierarchy, The Story of the Committee of 300. Dave Girard is a blogger with rocknerd.co.uk and a music journalist. Coleman's rationale is for having all these British invasion bands land in America was to provide some sort of element to cause a quote, major irreversible cultural revolution. This was his huge Aquarian conspiracy, a huge elaborate conspiracy, which this was just one part of. Introduce drugs and sex and riots and street gangs and so on. There's a PDF that came out in the 70s, a white paper called Changing Images of Man. And this was done by, I believe, Stanford Research in concert with uh, some of the Tavistock research. And what Changing Images of Man proposed was the idea that in order to change culture on a large scale, you would have to change man's image of man himself. So man's self-view had to be altered. And one way to do that would be through several decades of alterations in education, alterations in the culture, alterations in the idea of what it is to be American. Americanism itself had to be altered. And this was quite consciously, intentionally changed. And so the way that you do that is not to try to go after older generations. You have sort of business phases set for each generation. So the baby boomers and and their generation, they had a specific message that was kind of given to them. Then you have, I guess, my generation, and then you have now the millennials. And each one of these quite consciously is given a different stage uh, of this programming. And to make it very simple, the end goal is world government. That's Jay Dyer, a pop culture analyst who deconstructs the deeper messages, symbols, and predictive programming subtext that underlie various forms of media, including films and music. Popular music, according to this theory, was the perfect instrument to reshape the moral, spiritual, cultural, political, and economic culture of the United States and hasten the decline of Britain's former colony. By the early 1960s, the time for the deployment of this new weapon was ripe. 
So the timing was the rapid pace of technological advancement from tubes to diodes to transistors to chips. So as you develop the technology to record this so well and broadcast it so clearly, and as the technology comes online, that's what makes the timing. The TV made the Beatles. But music journalist Dave Girard doesn't buy into the conspiracy. He says British musicians were simply taking American music, rhythm and blues music, which had been developed by African Americans decades earlier, and repackaging it for middle-class white audiences. It was very much a class thing and a race thing at the time. In the early 60s, rock and roll was very black music. By late 60s, it was very white music. And someone like Jimi Hendrix was an odd creature. And that was basically because of the British invasion. Suddenly had nice-looking white boys playing this music, which was completely American music. The British just repackaged it. So, But the conspiracy theorists behaved like they weren't aware that this was literally American music, American riffs, American tunes, literally American songs in the case of the Rolling Stones, who didn't start writing songs until a few years into their career. And Coleman's theory includes bands like Led Zeppelin, who literally just ripped off old blues songs. The um, theory is that if the conspiracists didn't know about it, it didn't exist, then it must be um, people messing with them. According to Jay Dyer, Britain's Psychological Warfare Division had studied group dynamics and something called hero worship. They pioneered research into how individuals in a special operations team, for example, could be convinced to die for their leader. So they perfected these techniques and the realization was that, well, you know, it's not just about military. We can, we can actually apply these tactics to both the corporate world or to the pop culture world. So the idea of creating a star is essentially something that, that best exemplifies this because what happens in the mass consciousness is that public is given the impression that these people live a kind of godlike existence and therefore everyone wants to emulate them. Uh, so they basically created the idea of the rock star, you could argue. And now granted, certainly there were predecessors to this with royalty and famous people. There's no doubt. But but the idea of the rock god, I think you can trace directly to Tavistock and the, the Tavistock slash CIA background to both the Grateful Dead uh, and the Beatles and the Rolling Stone. I think it's all part of that same complex, that same matrix. That's not to say that the musicians weren't real musicians, but rather the, that they were kind of propelled to these positions by establishment approval and backing. So the Beatles represent, I think, again, that, that radical kind of cultural Marxist approach to social revolution, uh, not so much, again, a Marxist economic theory, but rather a gradual, if you notice, if you watch the career of the Beatles, you go from this kind of happy, lovey, I want to hold your hand, right, and then into... <laughs> Picture yourself on a boat on a river. And you're, you're like tripping and, and you're seeing kaleidoscopes. So in other words, they're almost kind of taking you along the ride with the Beatles into the mass LSD drugging phase. And I think that was absolutely intentional. That's why you see that with pop stars today. They go from the young, uh, so-called innocent Britney Spears into the sort of whore, right? The Madonna whore complex. And that's to lead the youth along this same path. The Beatles were supposed to push drugs to decent American kids. So, as I said, this is basically a repackaging of fear of black people, fear of black music, fear of black culture. The war on drugs, starting with 
marijuana being banned because black people liked it and white people were into alcohol instead. You had legitimate uh, anti-war musicians. And what the establishment wanted to do was to co-opt the energy of youth and the creativity of the musicians out of real concerns like having a coherent stance or position against the war for a coherent reason and steer it off into degenerate hedonism, just sort of total lasciviousness, total moral abandon, and to become like Jim Morrison bombed out of his mind on stage having sex with the microphone and the, and the speaker. That was done on purpose really to delegitimize and de-energize real anti-war sentiment. So I think that the Beatles are another great example of that. Not that they were ever really political, but rather that they are the preeminent example uh, of a non-political band that is quite intentionally brought over to sell the ideas of social change and social engineering. They, they realized it was something exotic. You know, let's bring a British band over to, to the U.S. that would have a, a sort of an exotic appeal. And it also eventually brings the far eastern sort of new agey ideas of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and transcendental meditation at the same time, as well as the CIA promotion of LSD. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was very visible and conscious. You can imagine the subconscious. The conscious thing they talk about is only a tip of the iceberg. Below that, there's tons of ways in which you look at the music of the Beatles and it promotes drug taking and you should listen to it. And to get the full meaning, you get it by getting high and then listening to the music. So they promote the drug taking both within its effect and with its cause and the content of it. And they were very successful because they then supplied the need. Let's get high on LSD. Well, then they sell the LSD. And then that whole idea of, oh, drug taking is by low-life dopes. They had to to break that and that's where they brought in the Tim Leary with the LSD and he's a Harvard professor so now make all the lawyers and the doctors and the accountants and who were maybe not going to it because it was for the bums now it's like hey Leary's doing it let's try it when the rock and roll twilight zone continues were the Beatles used to distract the American public from the Warren Commission's report on the JFK assassination Welcome back to the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. Here's Richard Serrett. On this episode of the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, we're exploring the conspiracy theory that the Beatles were a British intelligence psyop. The Beatles' mission was not only to corrupt American youth and make drug-taking cool, but according to conspiracy theorist John Coleman, they also served as a convenient distraction when they came ashore in early 1964. Once again, Dave Girard. A lot of conspiracy theorists who followed him and used his work seem to think that all of this was a distraction. The Beatles came over, 
around the time of the Kennedy assassination or just after, there was a whole lot of controversial things happening, a lot of really interesting times going on in America at the time. And then they dropped the Beatles in to distract everyone. In 1964, we were going to have the publishing of the Warren Commission, which was the report into the assassination of Kennedy. So once again, it was going to get America's attention back on the Kennedy assassination. They didn't want that. So in order to make sure that that gets distracted, they brought in the Beatles. Really, this is a conspiracy theory view that nothing is a coincidence when actually most things are. Because life keeps on going and the UK and the US were both huge countries with a lot of things happening all at the same time. So a lot of coincidences are going to happen. And this was really one of them. Certainly the Beatles were dropped into the middle of a seething morass of um, politically important things, but then they could have been dropped into it any time, five years before or after, and you could have said the same thing. Assuming for a moment that this is all true, that the Beatles were created by British intelligence as part of a plot to hasten the decline of the United States, how exactly were they created and by whom? The conspiracy begins at London's Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. Jay Dyer. It actually arises in the UK out of the studies of World War I PTSD. In fact, this is where PTSD comes from, is the idea of shell shock. And what they wanted to do was study traumatized soldiers, why they were having these phenomena when they would come back from a wartime of apparent trauma. So as they were studying this, they eventually evolved into a Rockefeller-funded operation to look at human psychology management techniques and social engineering. So it really became the pioneer European or UK think tank, I guess you could say, a management uh, strategies technique for how to manage mass groups of people. And isn't it interesting that it's born out of trauma research? <laughs> because that's exactly what I would say modern mass media does, is essentially desensitize and traumatize us on, on a mass scale. Uh, ultimately, MKUltra is very closely tied to the work of Tavistock. And many of the same people who would be prominent in Tavistock would also be connected to MKUltra. The idea that the Task Institute was involved in anything nefarious really was pretty much the whole cloth invention of Dr. John Coleman. He said that he had a career as a professional intelligence officer. He appears to have pulled this out of thin air. When I was trying to trace this back, he was the origin. I don't know where he pulled this from, but he decided that this was part of his grand conspiracy theory in which he called Project Aquarius, the Aquarian Conspiracy. The Tavistock Institute was apparently, in his theory, the organ which consulted with large chunks of the US government to work out how to put this into place. So he had things like a one-world government, the destruction of all national identity and pride, the destruction of religion, control of people using technotronics to create human-like robots, an end to industrialization, legalization of drugs, depopulation, killing three billion people by the year 2000. And way down the list was introduce cults and continue to boost those already functioning with the filthy degenerate, that's Colvin's words I'm quoting, Mick Jagger's Rolling Stones, a gangster group, and the Beatles created by the Tavistock Institute, apparently. So, yeah, it appears that John Coleman was the person who put this theory out there, and this was in his 1991 book, The Committee of 300. 
after World War One uh, and then into World War Two, they really pioneered and, and perfected these techniques of mass social engineering. And as we have talked about in the past, you know, the, the CIA and these different agencies, they're not just concerned with foreign operations or something like that. They're actually interested in culture creation. So what Tavistock started doing was looking at how to engineer through mass pop culture. And what they did was they came up with the application of psychological warfare techniques in wartime to peacetime, to mass audiences, mass social settings, and then also by extension through popular culture. So I think you could truly say that you have the creation of toxic culture coming from the Frankfurt School working in tandem with Tavistock. The Frankfurt School Dyer just mentioned was a collection of German scholars and intellectuals who were proponents of a particular approach to cultural criticism. According to the conspiracy theory, the Frankfurt School worked alongside Tavistock to foment cultural revolution. It was later branded cultural Marxism. It's commonly used by right-wingers and particularly the far-right and alt-right to dismiss anything that they consider not sufficiently right-wing. But it actually meant something originally. Originally, it was a snarl word used by actual communists who thought that the Frankfurt School were, were hipsters, basically. They thought that they weren't committed enough to the struggle, that they were just faffing about with all this art stuff and called them, oh, you're only cultural Marxists. And that it was later adopted by the right wing as a snarl word was really weird. The Frankfurt School was essentially a branch of Marxists known as the critical theory Marxists who diverged from the Soviet bloc, uh, Eastern bloc, communist-style Marxists, because the Soviet bloc-style Marxists favored the idea of Stalinism and kind of the dictator-type view, and at least we're told the Frankfurt School Marxists uh, were more into the ideas of freedom and a little more uh, interested in seeing revolution as opposed to top-down control. Now, that, that idea of revolution on the part of the Frankfurt School is not you know, something positive. What they mean is counterculture radical revolution. And so this is actually spelled out in a lot of the Frankfurt School writers like Adorno. Horkheimer and Adorno have a book, Dialectic of Enlightenment, where they discuss this process of perpetual cultural revolution. And so really from the Frankfurt School is where we get the idea of cultural Marxism. And this is basically not so much the economic theories of Marx, but rather the revolutionary ethos as applied to culture. Now, most people think, well, maybe it was this just the Soviets and the KGB. Uh, no, actually, it was the CIA or its predecessor, the OSS, that brought the Frankfurt School Marxists to the U.S. to actually help the OSS and later the CIA craft culture. And that's documented. It was uh, actually, that's in Foreign Affairs magazine. You can look up the, the history of that. One of the leading members of the Frankfurt School was a philosopher, sociologist, and composer named Theo Ardono. Ardono was known for his critical theory of society. In his book, The Committee of 300, former British intel agent John Coleman claims Ardono was involved in this Beatles experiment. Coleman claims that Ardono actually wrote the music, but that he also wrote the lyrics for the Beatles, and that it was in typical conspiracist thinking that it was all trigger words designed to allude to things that were other parts of the conspiracy. The general conspiracist theme that 
all the conspiracy is actually being waved right in your face if only you know to look to the words. Someone who is the A&R rep for the record company, his job was to now start looking for the music and the lyrics, and he'd be working under George Martin, and Theo Ardono was the guy, let's just say he was responsible for producing it, because he didn't really write it, but he rewrote it, and he put it through the computers and recomputerized it. These Bletchley Park Enigma computers, the Enigma computers worked on it and really redesigned the music in order to fall in line with musical postulates that they knew would work to confuse the mind. If you listen to a great symphony, there's no drum set, no drums. There's a bass drum, but there's no drum set. So there's not a tribal chant beat, a mesmerizing tribal chant beat. And that's what the rock and roll brought in was this mesmerizing sampling constant beat and making it subaudible. And that they realized was a way of altering people's mind. There's all these special effects these people are aware of and they employ it using computers and otherwise. And that's why we have Muzak at the malls. We go there and we start shopping. Why? Because the music's designed to be like the smell of good cooking sits in the background there altering you, but you not being aware of it. Adorno is worth mentioning here because he did uh, have extensive studies in music and music theory, but he also saw that music and music theory could be turned to changing the youth, youth culture, and altering culture on a large scale. And of course, that idea is not new. It goes back to Plato. Plato was very afraid of music to the degree that he even considered banning poets and musicians in his ideal republic. But Adorno uh, kind of borrowed from this idea and he discussed the possibilities of interjecting not just such extreme ideas as necrophilia and bestiality into pop culture, but even degenerate music. And uh, for him, atonal, syncopated, out of step, dissonant music, he believed, that was very repetitive would actually produce in the mass psyche dissociation. So quite literally a traumatized dissociative state through very dissonant music. And he discusses this in his writings. If you listen to the beat of it, it's not iambic pentameter, which is a Shakespearean and a biblical way of doing it. It's counter. It's really counter iambic pentameter is what it is. So he starts to change the structure of the music so that it's not natural. And so, again, he's one of these you know, premier Frankfurt School guys who talked about the need to break down culture. And he also talked about the need to break down culture because the family, he said, is what creates fascism. Right? To have a mom and a dad and children is inherently a fascist institution and it had to be destroyed. And what better way to destroy that than through sex, drugs and rock and roll? But for Dave Gardner, Theo Ardono is a strange choice for Coleman and others to pick as the mastermind behind the Beatles' music. Ardono was a cultural critic as well. He wrote about culture and society. To a large extent, he was the embittered music blogger of his day. He had a lot of opinions, and he was going to tell you all of them. Now, his actual musical tastes were at the cutting edge of classical music at the time, in the um, early 1900s. He was particularly fond of 12-tone, which was Schoenberg's thing. This was The basic rule was, you have 12 notes, you use each note once, and that makes up your phrase. Or you can only use 
a certain number of notes or a certain number of times. This was particularly uh, created by Schoenberg, who was a quite conventional composer before that. Then he hit upon this 12-tone thing, and basically it made his name, and it was hugely influential on 20th century music, particularly on jazz and film music. Now, Adorno went, this is the stuff, and he composed himself as well. Um, if you go on YouTube, we'll find a lot of Adorno recordings. They're actually quite good examples of the form. I mean, they're difficult listening. They're horrible racket. They're, they're erudite, cultural horrible racket. So this was the stuff that Adorno was into. He hated popular culture. He thought it was manipulative trash, sort of like what Coleman posits, that this was trash to manipulate people, but Adorno just thought it was part of the culture industry manipulating people in order to sell them trash. He really, really hated jazz. He really, really hated pop music, and he particularly disliked the Beatles. I think it's startling and unlikely that Adorno actually wrote the Beatles music. Like, he described them as... What can be urged against the Beatles is simply that what these people have to offer is something that is retarded in terms of its own objective content. It can be shown that the means of expression that are employed and preserved here are in reality no more than traditional techniques in a degraded form. So yeah, Adorno wasn't really into the Beatles. When the rock and roll Twilight Zone continues, Canadian communications guru Marshall McLuhan sets John Lennon straight. out the back porch here whittling with my good friend Richard Serrett. Oh, Rich is a hell of a guy. Damn it. I just cut myself and God, it's crazy. I'm bleeding. It's like a stuffed pig. It's gushing everywhere. I'm gushing. Richard, I'm, I'm just getting a little dick. Richard, can you grab me that rag? Richard? Richard? Welcome back to the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. Here's Richard Serrett. On this episode of the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, we're exploring the theory the Beatles were a tool of the British military's psychological warfare division. Whether or not this conspiracy theory, as espoused by people like John Coleman, is true, the great Canadian communications guru Marshall McLuhan believed at least parts of it were true. In 1969, when John Lennon was in Toronto with his new group, the Plastic Ono Band, McLuhan arranged a meeting, during which he allegedly told Lennon he and the Beatles were tools of the British Crown. Former McLuhan protege, Nelson Thal. Basically, the Sermon on the Mount by McLuhan to Lennon stopped him in his tracks and made him think about how perhaps all those little things that you thought about and saw in the past that you disregarded were a pattern of a bigger pattern, even though they were small at the moment. And yeah, wait, wait a second. I have been used as a useful fool. I fell into it. And by the time I realized it, I... I didn't want to think about it too much because it was too late anyway. McLuhan said, look, there's a big operation here of British intelligence going on here that's bigger than you. Well, Lennon got angry and he went huffing and puffing out of the room. And he was heard to say as he left the room, McLuhan is sort of crazy and he's conspiratorial, etc. And he came back two days later apologizing and told McLuhan that he's absolutely right. And of course, that's when he figured, oh, what am I going to do to sort of repent from having been a useful fool? And let me start to try and get people's attention. And he started to rebel in various ways. And of course, 
the Beatles broke that. And then eventually when Lennon went awry, McCartney's an establishment guy. He's not interested in rebellion. He wants to get along with Her Majesty the Queen. But Lennon wasn't that way. He, he was more like an American type. He was in the United States. He lived in New York. He was a rebel. He was a patriot. He was in favor of breaking away from the monarchy and exposing them, which he did, especially with that last video of Mind Games. It is that time period when he does become more political. I definitely think that from what I do know of the history of the Beatles, you have that period where John gets certainly more political, very, very vocal. You know, he does eventually get to that point where he's he's warning about depopulation and, and eugenics. And I don't think they would want that message coming out. So I think that McLuhan with, you know, the medium is the message and, and his uh, connection to the CIA and stuff like that. I think that he's certainly somebody who's a person of interest in, in this story. In his letters to Ezra Pound, lamented that we live in, as he said, we live in an age of gigantic pictorial illusionism and journalistic exaggeration of concealment in which the truth in conversation has disappeared everywhere. That's a quote. And he lamented that the power of the marks was so great that the arts and sciences were in their pockets. And of course, he pointed to how the oil companies fund all the chairs at the universities. So the culture control of the university was taken over by the corporate gang. And as Marshall said, so the arts and sciences are in the pockets of these secret societies. We're obviously part of an operation that the Queen is involved with. We were knighted. Now, they don't even have to know why they were knighted, but they're knighted. And Lennon obviously figured it out. The others probably heard it, figured it out and laid low. McCartney laid low star for sure he played sergeant schultz i know nothing hear nothing see nothing i'm a drummer i know nothing were the beatles a top-down creation were four unsuspecting useful fools scooped off the streets of liverpool and hamburg and run through the star machine were they then deployed in America as a psychological warfare weapon? When the Beatles received their Order of the British Empire medals from Her Majesty the Queen, was it in recognition of their role in the repossession of Great Britain's long-lost colony? Perhaps Marshall McLuhan was onto something when he said, those conspiracies that are too incredible to be believed are by the same right those which most often succeed. Either way, I'll bet you never listen to another Beatles record the same way again. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. In their infinite wisdom, the pod gods have decided to end this hot mess now. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone is researched, written, and hosted by Richard Serrett. Produced by David Whalen. And I'm Jamie Watson. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone with Richard Serrett. Heard exclusively on Westwood One and the Jericho Network. Listen next week. Oh, come. We won't. You are romance helping we will rip you from your comfort level and and I'm not kidding. <laughs> Have a great week. I didn't get enough show. Download new episodes every Wednesday. Rate and review at Apple Podcast and Google Play. Please be sure to lie and give us a five-star rating and review. Thank you, listeners. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.